are we here in this time? This place? What are we made for? Our lives have purpose. God has a calling for each one of us. General. Specific. In our families, our workplaces, our church, our city, our country, our world. Clarity in our calling. Purpose in our present. Our great God is offering us something beautiful. When I was a kid, my family and I were visiting another part of our family one summer, and for an afternoon, a sunny, hot afternoon, we went to go swim in this river. And during the course of that experience, my brother, who's standing next to me, all of a sudden lost control of his body. He couldn't move his arms or legs the, the way he normally could, because see, what had happened was he had moved from the stillness of the shoreline into accidentally the current of the river. And as the moment kind of progressed, he's, he's getting further and further away from me. I'm seeing less and less of his body above the water. And it's a moment of panic, both for him and also for me. And this moment sticks in my mind, uh, not because, you know, anything bad happened. He was undramatically rescued within seconds. You know, my aunt walked over and just kind of pulled him out, you know, almost kind of casually. But it reminds me, every time I think of this, of our potential to be pulled into something that is stronger and bigger than we are. And that's what I'm hoping happens in our time today, is that we would get a vision for God's heart for the church. And that in the process of that, with, with clarity and with accuracy and with relevance, that we would get pulled into that current and fall in love with something that's beyond our imagination and invest in it sincerely. Now, I, I know when, you, when we hear the topic of church, each of us comes with a particular set of ideas, feelings, and experiences, and some of those may not be very positive. And, and even for me, I guarantee you, I promise you, that honestly, I have felt just as much, if not more, frustration, skepticism, and, and honestly, exhaustion with the reality of the church in my lifetime. And so, honestly, I need this message today. And I think so do you. So as we, as we move forward, we're, we're going to hit some real stuff, but, but let me lay some groundwork, some framework within the context of our series on calling as we jump into the New Testament book of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to go there. We're going to start off with this theme verse from Ephesians chapter 4, which says this, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So there's this idea that you and I, we have a calling on our lives. But I think what the Holy Spirit wants to do today for us is put this verse in context with its surrounding verses, both before and after. So look at the preceding verses in Ephesians chapter 3. We've got this prayer that Paul is praying to the Father, and he says this in verses 20 to 21. Now to him, God the Father, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. 
Amen. Those are some profound statements that I wish we could dwell on. You know, maybe we should memorize those and really ponder the depth and the gravity of them some other time. But look, where is God's glory shown? In Christ Jesus, but also in the church. So before we hear about our calling, we've got this corporate sense of we heading into the, uh, this, this, this idea of calling. So both before Ephesians 4.1, but also after, look where it goes after that. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So both before this phrase about calling, we've got the sense that the, the glory of God is in the church. And then we have these instructions that are all relational in nature. The idea being that the calling that you and I have is found in the context of community. We don't lose our individuality and we don't diminish our individuality, but God places us in community. And we said in the first part of this series that you are primarily called to a person, to God himself, who is a father, bringing to life sons and daughters and placing them in his kingdom, in his family. What that means for us today, and my message in one sentence for us, is that if we want to walk deeper in our calling, we need to personally own our faith in the context of being anchored to a local church. That we are not going to experience the fullness of our individual call outside of connection to the general call of the church that God loves and is building now, if you were to present to me this conclusion even 10 years ago, I would have cringed. Because, see, I'm coming out of, out of, out of high school, I'm, I'm graduating, and I move into a, a, a year-long Bible program at this college because, you know, my faith in Jesus, it was important to me. And, and my parents had, you know, instilled in me this, this motivation to go and, and lay a firm foundation in the Word of God and in, in community with other believers before I headed off to university or, or wherever I was going. But in the course of that year, I remember this moment at a family barbecue where one of my family members came up to me and was asking me about my future and like, why are you doing what you're doing? And I was like, well, you know, I'm at this Bible college and, and, and the conversation got awkward because then this question came up and it was worded in, in a tone that just made me feel uncomfortable as, well, you're not going to become some sort of pastor, are you? And with, with all that was in me, I wanted to emphatically just go, no, absolutely not. Because look, I didn't come you know, from living most of my life being anchored in the church. My, my, my church history, for especially my formative years, was not a big part of my life. It wasn't important to me. I wasn't connected in, in that sort of way. And now I, I'm being asked, are you going to go and, and lead in some sort of church setting somewhere? My answer was absolutely not. I haven't seen this really play out. And this isn't my purpose for, for where I think I'm going. I'm just doing a year, I promise you. And, it, and, it, and even, even as I explain it now, there, there's this sense of just awkwardness I remember because I, I've had... And I still have to this day a fear of being misunderstood. 
Not a, not a fear of, of being disagreed with. That, that I'm used to. That I, that I can kind of understand. You know, when you, when you look at the Bible, when you look at this faith we have, there are going to be things that are countercultural, subversive, uh, a different message than the, than the narrative that the world wants to bring. We have to be okay with that and, and be okay with being disagreed with. That's not the fear I have. The fear I have is of being rejected for something that I myself also reject. And bear with me for a moment because we we need to dive in and press in a little bit more on this because I know I'm not the only one who feels this way. There are certain things that people think about you if you are a Christian, if you are a church person that are not necessarily true from the Bible's perspective. The perception uh, for me growing up, of the perception of my friends, my co-workers, the guys on my soccer team, my extended family, you know, moving into my, my, my job here at Central Heights, the, the students I would eventually have in my youth group, their idea of church isn't always what I see God's idea of church being. And so for you, if you're exploring faith today, if you're, if you're not a fan of organized religion today, and you're, you're going, how am I going to sit through a message and, and hear a vision for something that, that to me honestly sounds harmful at worst or irrelevant at best? See, see for me, what sometimes happens with, with this label of pastor is people in their minds uh, associate my role with a more public you know, spectacle that they might, you know, have seen earlier. Like a few weeks ago, we have preachers in Vancouver, you know, in their neighborhood, making people feel very uncomfortable, creating sort of this, this chaotic moment of, of anti-gay rhetoric. And so, you know, this ends up with at least one person going to the hospital. It's just kind of this, this, this mess, honestly, where the LGBTQIA2S plus community just feels unsafe and uncomfortable. And, and, and by the way, if, if that mouthful of, of letters I just mentioned makes you want to, you know, joke about something, can I just gently point out, that's not helpful. It's not helpful because, see, the, the grade 8 student who, you know, is, is talking to me about life and faith, who's got a sibling who's transgender, now is, is, is having this level of distrust in me. Because I'm a speaker, I'm a teacher, and, and all he's seen on the news of speakers and teachers is things like that. Because the bisexual college student who used to talk to me about how to read the Bible, has now told a mutual friend both of, of both of ours that they're afraid of talking with me any further because they feel like I'm going to judge them. And we all have this, this, this baggage we bring when we, when we think of this concept of church because of just what's been shouted loudly or otherwise, both outside church, but even worse, from inside the church. And so... You and I, we've got friends who, you know, they love science and they're working in the academic community, they're working in the scientific community, but they don't really want to anchor their life in a local church because they feel ignored or belittled, like somehow they don't have something to contribute because of what they are exploring in the scientific field. It's like this, this war that somebody started between science and faith for, at certain levels has been confirmed to them by their experience in a church. My friends who are struggling to, to follow Jesus and, and you know, they're, they're, they're walking in, in some sort of, you know, sin habit in their life, you know, especially things like pornography where, you know, now they come to the church and rather than feeling a, a sense of grace and help, they're feeling shame and guilt 
My friends who, who you, know, you know, really wanted to, to you know, expand their prayer life, but for some reason, doctrine was pushed over love, and what ended up happening was this, this fear-driven theology that demanded you know, this, this strict obedience to rules, and that was the only way God was going to love you. And the list goes on and on. People thinking that the church is about only voting a certain way in election season. Or, or maybe diminishing the effects of systemic racism in our society. Uh, on and on it goes. You know, this, this post I saw a couple of weeks ago of a friend of mine on Facebook who shared that, you know, they're in a mental health crisis in their own life and that the church for them was a source of mental health abuse because what they were messaged, what they were told was that pursuing professional help, that was a sign that they did not trust God, that they did not have enough faith, and that they were going about things in the wrong way. And in their rant, which ended up getting 106 reposts and shares from others, people resonated with that. And so I understand, and I share a lot of perhaps the wrestling and the tension with the concept of church. When we're talking about, well, we need to have our lives anchored in this, if we want to understand what our individual call is, we, we, we realize that it's connected to the general call of the church, but what actually is the church? It might be why, all of what we've just said, it might be why we see research showing things about a generation I'm so passionate about spinning on in a trajectory that's, that's not necessarily very exciting. Listen to what one study found uh, coming out of the Barna Group and, and some of the, the research that they've conducted where, it's, where they've concluded, you know, historically, Gen Z and millennials are less likely than older generations to be connected to a church. The church dropout rate among 18 to 25-year-olds has increased from 59% to 64% in the past decade. Data featured in Gen Z also sheds light on the fact that with the emerging generation, they're less likely to see church as important. With those who hold this perspective admitting, church is not relevant to me personally. I find God elsewhere, and I can teach myself what I need to know. I understand why those conclusions are there. If, if in light of, of all the anecdotal evidence from, from the people that, I, that, that you and I care about, we know that some of this is just way too real and way more true than it should be. But look, this is not the, the Father's intention for what he is calling us to, as we are called to you know, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Look how 1 Peter puts it. You know, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, you know, this, this is where we were. We, we're. we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, I don't, I don't see a, a, a New Testament vision of the church that, that looks like the things that people uh, think it, that it is. 
I would reject a lot of those ideas, and I think you would too. Because look, right out of the start, when we see the church birth after Jesus comes, lives a perfect life on our behalf, dies on a cross for our sins, does everything when we could do nothing, rising from the dead so that we by faith could be declared righteous and forgiven in him. He ascends to the Father, pours out his spirit to, to, so that they can be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And look what happens in Acts chapter 2, this, this, this early description of the church. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, what God is doing from, from history past into current day is he's got this vision of the church that is something beautiful. Now, it may never be flawless. There's always going to be things because we're dealing with people who, who are flawed from the start like you and like me. But it's something way more beautiful than we often realize. And it's something worth anchoring our lives into. Not just the church universally throughout time and space and history all around the globe today, but the church locally, a specific body of believers. So if all of what we've talked about you know, is, is what the church is not, well, what actually is the church then? What is it supposed to look like? What, what actually is it? And I want to give in, in our time today two big categories to, to think more deeply about coming out of this message. The first category is this. Jesus is the one who builds his church. The church is built by Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16, we have this scene where one of Jesus' first followers, Peter, uh, is, is, has answered a very important question about who Jesus really is. He acknowledges the truth of who the Son of God, this Messiah, is. And what we're told in Matthew chapter 16 is that Jesus tells him, look, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This, this, this idea is that Jesus sees the church, loves it, gave himself for it, and is actually building it, is invested into it himself in a very profound and amazing and beautiful way. This word church in the New Testament is, is from the Greek word ekklesia, which literally means called out ones. And it was a term used in Jesus' day to, to describe a gathering of people who were, who were gathering together for a specific mission or purpose. So what exactly is that? What exactly is Jesus building? What are, what are these called out people of God about? Well, I want to run through a, a list of characteristics, notable ones. Not a complete list, because look, there's entire college courses around this, this concept of ecclesiology. And so, you know, you might need to, you know, up your level with, with note-taking here or get our community groups guide midweek or something to press deeper into these, because I'm going to move frustratingly fast as we go. But look, here are some of the notable characteristics from the Bible's perspective of what Jesus is building when it comes to the church. First of all, what he is building, what these called out people of God uh, characterizes them, is that there is a strategic structure. 
a strategic structure. So, that, you know, there's, there's recognized leadership, there's authority, there's specific roles, there's, there's clearly defined entry points and exit points, there's, there's accountability, there's growth, there's discipline, there's, there's purpose, but it's all, you know, it's, it's organized. So, you know, the, the specific, you know, relationships you might have or, you know, you're going to a meeting with somebody in a coffee shop or you've got this college club or you've got this thing that you do and, and some Christians are there. Well, that's an expression of the church because you are members of this body but the New Testament would push further and say that's not the complete vision of what the local church is. There is a strategic structure. There's also a diversity of gifts. So God you know, gives people certain skills and talents and abilities and resources and passions for the common good. There's also an inclusive invitation that characterizes the church. So, you know, you could be from any background, any past experience, any, you know, place of struggle or success. You could, you could be from any family, any race, any nation. This is for you. God so loves the world that he gave himself so that whoever, whoever believes in him would not perish, would have eternal life. He doesn't want anybody to, to perish, but that all might reach repentance. He died for the sins, not just of, of our own sins, but the sins of the whole world. You today, if you're exploring, if, you, if you've been kind of brought into this conversation from a place of not trusting in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior who wants to rescue your life separated from God and rule your life and take you further into a life of abundance and blessing, both now and in the future that you never thought possible, well, the invitation is on the table for you today. It's an inclusive invitation for everybody. And the thing about it, though, is it's not just an inclusive invitation. There's also an exclusive confession that we believe that there is only one Lord, as we've read, one God and Father overall, and that the only way to him is through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, so that it's whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved an inclusive invitation with an exclusive confession. And once we've made that confession, once we've placed our trust in Jesus, not doing any sort of religious duty or work or completing a checklist of things, but simply believing in his finished work for us from a position where he loved us when we were his enemies, we are then brought into another characteristic of the church, which is a lifelong apprenticeship where God wants to transform us from glory to glory, that, that we who, who say we know him, we become to live like him. We grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. We grow into this, this holy calling we have for our lives, for the rest of our lives. And beyond that, the church has a compassionate presence. It's why we see in, in places like James, you know, that, that pure religion, it's to care for orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, it's, it's, it's like we see all throughout history, the church at its healthiest, as Jesus is building it, it cares for the lost, it cares for the last, it cares for the least, it cares for the nearly dead. It cares because it's got a compassionate presence. It lets its light shine before the world so that they may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. Another characteristic is that the church has a specific celebration. So we have things like, like the, the, the communion and the Lord's Supper, whereby we gather and remember him until he returns again to set all things right. It's why we have things like baptism, where, we, where it illustrates the death of our old life and the start of our new life. It's why we worship Jesus alone, not God generically, but Jesus specifically for who he is and what he's done in spirit and in truth. We worship him in this way. The church also 
as a consuming cause to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching people to obey all that Jesus commanded as he is with us to the end of this present age, to present people mature in Christ one day, teaching them about Jesus. It's also the called out people of God who have a spirit-filled power so that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us, is with us until the end when Jesus comes back and is empowering us for life and for mission today. And more than all this, it's a church that Jesus is building, the called out people of God who have an assured victory and I know it might look like church is getting more and more unimportant. The, the research that we see shows that people are viewing it as irrelevant. But look, from God's perspective, because God himself is building this thing, there is an assured victory. Kingdoms are going to come. Kingdoms are going to go. Trends are going to rise. Trends are going to fall. But the church of Jesus that he is building is going to outlast every pandemic, every government, every type of thing we go through. The church has an assured victory. And there is this hope within our call as we've read built in what Jesus is doing, that there's a guarantee that we're banking our life on. Why would we not want to personally own our faith, investing in it in the context of the church, anchoring our lives in this? This is a beautiful and amazing thing. As imperfect as it might be at times, this is what Jesus is building. The church is built by Jesus. But more than that, the church, secondly, is a family you can belong to. So we look in Ephesians, again, going back to, to chapter 2 this time, starting at verse 18. For through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You also, not just you individually, this is plural, you, us, we, we are being built into a temple for the living God, the creator of the universes, galaxies, stars, oceans, seas, animals, everything that there is. He wants to dwell in his church, and that is why we're told, you know, this is where his glory is going to be. And it's a family that you and I, we can belong to, a structure that's being joined together, a place to belong this is why we see the, the Bible doesn't present to us this idea of a church being a building that you can visit. It's why during a pandemic, you know, a facility can shut down, but the church never stops. It's why, you know, we, we, we see, you know, the biblical picture telling us, you know, the church is, is, is not an event to attend. It's not an organization to join. It's a family. It's a family that you need and a family that needs you. James Emery White a pastor and an author writes this about the church. This church was to serve as the ongoing manifestation of Christ himself on earth, being called his body, an idea of profound significance throughout the New Testament. Beyond the interconnectedness this suggests, it means that the church is the locus of Christ's activity and that he works through the church now as he worked through his physical body during his 33-year life. In the New Testament, there's no ministry outside of the local church, or at least its umbrella. 
And there's no such thing as an unchurched Christian to New Testament thinking that would have been an oxymoron. If we want to discover our specific calling, what's going to be within the boundaries of the general calling of the church? The me that I'm called to be is going to be built within the context of the we he's calling us to be. In a local church setting, part of the whole structure, this dwelling place that God is building and that you can belong to. But you might be saying, okay, well, I, I am, I'm sold. I, I'm personally, you know, wanting to own my faith, but I'm not sure, you know, exactly what, what local church to commit my life to. Let me just offer a, a suggestion. Find a place where Jesus is the hero and where you resonate with the vision. Now, every church probably has some sort of vision statement. It's, it's, it's wordsmith and nuanced coming out of the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. So, you know, make disciples of all nations, love God and love people. It's, it's probably a mashup of some of those. Here at Central Heights, we say we have a vision to be a movement of more and growing followers of Jesus, developing healthy churches for the glory of God and for the flourishing of our city and the world. So as Jesus has made the hero in our programs, in our preaching, we also then are, are doing other things where we're, you know, we're revving up initiatives to partner with our city, to meet needs in our city, you know, where we have a, a, a women's drop-in center and, and a food bank, and where we have homeless people living in our, in our facility overnight, every day of the week, where we have you know, missionaries that we support, where we have a thanksgiving offering we hold every fall to support God's work globally and in, and in the city of Abbotsford, where we have you know, programs to, to bring in people from whatever school on a Thursday night to join our youth group to, to hear about you know, becoming a movement of God and being put in a position in that way, both in our building, but also especially in our city. It's why we have community groups of threes and fours, mid-sized, small groups on Zoom and in person. It's why we have all of these things happening because it's all flowing out of a specific vision we feel called to. And while, you know, we, we have to say no to some things sometimes in order to say yes to others, we believe that, you know, God is, our, our, our specific calling flows out of the general calling of the church. And so, you know, we would invite you into that. You know, it, Jesus is the hero in, in our church's story, and we've got this particular vision that you've heard about. And, and if Central Heights is that place, let me give us four keys for, to, to personally own and to help us anchor ourselves further as, as, we, as we kind of come to the end of our message. The first opportunity is more, uh, I would say, informative than it is a call to action. And it's simply the opportunity of language. See, yeah, we, we believe here that words matter. So this isn't just about institutional jargon or you know, terminology or, or kind of mincing words just to make things sound more trendy. No, we actually believe there's meaning packed into how we talk about what we talk about. So this is why, you know, in, in our small groups and in, in the stuff that we do to, to scale church community in smaller contexts within the larger body, you know, we say we have community groups, not care groups. Now, it's not to say, well, you know, does care not happen? Well, of course care happens, but we're just saying, you know, we want to just change the language a little bit to incorporate a broader vision. So it's not just about people inside the group, but there's also an outward focus for our neighborhoods, for our city, so that it's not just about care, it's also about mission. It's also about, you know, developing healthy churches for the flourishing of our city. Words matter. It's why we have kids' church instead of childcare. So, you know, you know anybody can, can show up and be present in a room with, with your kids uh, or with anybody's kids while the parents are outside of the room. Anybody can just be a, a physical presence to, to, to watch out for kids. 
But what we're saying is we're doing more than that. We have a vision to, to help these kids at any age, at any stage, to know and follow Jesus better. So when you're, when you're, when you're dropping them off, when you're bringing them, when, whenever you're involved with our kids ministry, you're coming to kids' church. You're not coming to child care. That's why we have hosts instead of ushers. Because an usher could be anybody who just shows you where to sit down. Whereas a host is somebody to, to make you feel welcome, like you belong and to be a shepherding presence when you enter, you know, an in-person gathering. We believe words matter. And, you know, perhaps for you, some of the language you want to kind of adopt as you're part of the Centralites family, you know, you're going to start hearing us talk about things like 168 discipleship. Well, why 168? Because there's 168 hours in the week. And we believe that knowing and following Jesus is the best possible thing in each of those hours. That's why we want to engage you, equip you, and empower you, and, and come alongside one another to follow Jesus, not just on Sunday, but every day. To have this sort of 24-7, all-encompassing life of faith. You know, we, as we anchor our lives in Central Heights Church, we, we are living inside this home. We're not just showing up, you know, sporadically to visit or, or to kind of, you know, attend something. No, this is a family we belong to as an opportunity in language. But let me move into three more that I, that I think are just so robust, no matter what church family you call home. The next one is the opportunity of prayer. I, I find myself, if I can be honest, I find myself sometimes convinced that we are unconvinced we need a move of God. And I, and I wonder what would happen if, if we took things like Colossians 4 too seriously, you know, to devote ourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful in it. You know, what would happen... In, in our church and in our city, if that were to be the case. Like, look, if, if you call Central Heights your home and you don't pray for your church, well, who are you hoping does? If you don't pray for your family, who are you hoping does? If you're not praying for Abbotsford, who are you hoping does that? This is what we do as a family, as residents of our city. This is what we do. So, you know, maybe some tangible steps forward to, to, to do coming out of this is, is to sign up for the Abbotsford Neighborhood Prayer Walk, you know, that's coming up to cover a street in prayer for a week here at the end of the month. Maybe you want to check out the opportunities to, to jump into our, 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 our prayer gatherings on Zoom on, on Tuesday morning or Sunday morning. But, but whatever it is, consider, you know, how can I be praying more with more people? Imagine what would happen as Jesus builds his church in that way and as, as he reveals his calling in that way through prayer. A third thing I would want to point us to is this concept and this opportunity of sacrifice. And here I'm talking about, you know, this level of inconvenient investment into our church and into our city. We might have to sacrifice. Now, you might have to sacrifice a night of your week to join a community group. They're starting up like right now. Go online, find one, get connected there. You might have to sacrifice, you know, some of the resources that God has given you in order to see the flourishing of our city or, you know, through our Thanksgiving offering uh, you know, or, to, or to, you know, develop our uh, Central Heights to be a healthier church and worship God in that way. You might have to sacrifice other things. I don't know what it might be for you, but, but I dare you. I dare you to ask God this week, God, what should I give up? Either a preference or a potential in order to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which I have been called. And fourthly, a last thing is the opportunity of maturity. So you look at, we've been in Ephesians a lot today, and we, we talk about Ephesians 1 with this, this, this calling language. Well, look what happens beyond that as we, as we move into the later parts of chapter 4. 
He says that, that in, in the process of building the church, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To what? To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Like, look, if you're losing your grip on the church, you're limiting your growth in faith. And so maturity is this huge possibility that's opened up to us. That might mean you need to find somebody who's ahead of you in faith and ask your questions and wrestle with your doubts and, and honest thoughts about, about Jesus and the Bible and, and, and the worldview that, that's all within that. It might mean that you, know, you need to, to see somebody you know, behind you in faith and call out potential. We've talked months ago about this idea of I see in you calling it out, speaking truth to one another in love in that way, as Ephesians says. To be like, I see in you this, this way that you can mature, this way that you can walk in a specific calling. It might mean that there's a new possibility to grow that you just didn't realize that you were limiting yourself and by staying disconnected. If we want to walk deeper in our calling, we have to personally own our faith in the context of being anchored in a local church and I would invite us all into that to a deeper level of commitment, sincerity, and appreciation for this beautiful thing that our amazing Lord is building and that you can belong to. And my prayer would be, as Ephesians says, that this, this, this would happen. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.